Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You know what I want? Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast or the Definitive Draft Podcast or just Keeping Up With Team Canada Podcast. Either way, it's a podcast. We're talking about basketball. And this episode isn't really centered around the NBA, but I guess players who participate in it when they're not doing Olympic qualifications. We're here to talk about Team Canada with Owen Weisfeld, whose written work can be found with Raptors Republic, Toronto Star, CBC, The Guardian, Sportsnet, whole bunch of different places. They're clamoring for them. They're saying, Oren, please, we need more of your written work. We want it so bad. You're talented, a generational talent. The Kevin Durant of, of writing about basketball, please. We need you, Oren. What do you say to that? I say I'm way too short <laughs> <laughs> to be the Kevin Durant comp, but I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I mean, happy to be here and talk some, some Canada b-ball. Do you have a Kevin Durant comp for media? Do I, um, I mean, I want to say Zach Lowe just because, like, he's the goat and he's tall. and He's kind of curmudgeonly, a, too. Yeah, the only thing is, like, personality-wise, I'm really not seeing it. <laughs> um, I don't think Zach has that many burners. I don't think he's on social media that much. I don't think he's as vulnerable as KD is, but once in a while he will talk about like his daughter and family life. And it's just like, yeah, inject this into my veins. I love it. <laughs> I'm thinking more so like, uh, you know, when he goes on a rant or something, he's like, why do we do this? Why do we do that? I see that as like the kindred spirit to uh, Kevin Durant Twitter thread or whatever, but you're right. Uh, Kevin Durant is shockingly vulnerable, although less so lately because he kind of took on the persona of, I just do whatever I want. And he's really started to wield his uh, power as a celebrity and rich person. He's decided not to let things bother him anymore. Yeah. And he, he also just like, yeah, it's true. He's been a little quieter and just like really let the work show on the court because everyone kind of doubted him. And then he was just like, oh, actually, I'm still the best. So here's this. Yeah. He's absolutely incredible. If he was on Team Canada, do you think they end up going to the Olympics? <laughs> well, no, because Team USA is 0-2, so the answer has to be no, right? If we're, if we're judging everything by Twitter standards. Sure. I was going to suggest that Team Canada has the infrastructure to support Kevin Durant, but that the United States doesn't. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's talk about that infrastructure then. And maybe, maybe let's do like a minute or two on your cliff notes of your experience there and, you know, just your, your ultimate takeaways coming away from that because you were at the qualifications in uh, Victoria. Yeah. I mean, I had a great experience. Uh, it was my first time covering live sports in many a years, honestly, probably since 
university, which ended in 2017. Um, you know, since then I've been doing, you know, interviews with athletes and, and a lot of Zoom stuff, but I haven't been to a live event like that. So it was really nice. It's also a lot more open there. So it was just nice to be somewhere compared to Toronto that's just like less fearful, more, you know, meeting new people. People are a little friendlier because they're coming out of this. And uh, in terms of like being at the tournament, it was great, especially when they got fans in the stands. It was it was really cool to be at, you know, a live game for the first time in a while. Um, it was really cool to see some of those athletes who I've never seen live before play, some of the NBA guys especially. And then like we also got to do some in-person interviews, which I think was the first time in Canada since the pandemic, where after games we would go and kind of scrum with a few athletes on each team. And and that was a great learning experience and also just a very exhilarating time. Yeah, I imagine it would be. Was there was there a highlight as far as somebody to talk to there? Um, I got some good stuff out of Lou Dort. Honestly, like in terms of the athletes, they were all incredibly nice. And I think maybe part of it had to do with, because for them, it was also the first time, you know, interviewing media in person. And I would imagine like us, they're sick of the Zoom stuff. So it must be nice for them to just go straight from the court, talk to some real humans in person and then go to the locker room and be done with it. Right. So they were all really nice. But yeah, I got some good stuff out of Lou Dort especially talking about like Dwight Powell. That's when I was writing a story about him and, and him talking about playing beside him and kind of the, the safety net he feels. Um, Nikhil Alexander-Walker was also really nice and well-spoken. Um, in the press conferences, Nick Nurse is just like a machine in terms of like he'll turn like any question. He'll, he'll just like find a way to give like a nice, good answer, even if the question is like mean, <laughs> like – He's he's really good at the press conference stuff. Was that a bit surprising given that he can be quite callous to Raptors players, for example? Yeah, I don't know. Like, that seems kind of so far away, even though it was maybe, like, less than a year ago. Um, but that's that's different than, I guess, the way he treats the media, even though maybe it shouldn't. I don't know if you saw the pop uh, clip with Joe Varden, I think, yesterday. Which was no, I didn't. Oh, it was just a, a, a weird back and forth. But no, Nick's not like that at all with the media from what I've gathered. He is a little mean to some of the young players for whatever reason. And uh, I've heard you talk about this. We don't need to get into it. But I guess it's surprising. But I also think like for he thinks it's a motivating factor for the players. Whereas with the media, he's not. He's just trying to like keep his job, you know. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I uh, I thought you were alluding to him being like very pleasant to his players rather than, yeah, when, I, when I've asked Nick Nurse a question, he's been extremely courteous and nice, for example. I don't, I don't think he's on like a, a rampage to destroy everybody around him, except Josh Lewenberg at times last year <laughs> for whatever reason. But let's, uh, let's dig a little bit more into Powell and why he became, in your words, maybe the best player on Team Canada. Uh, no, I got to correct you. The most important player. Oh, sorry. Canada. Yes, yes. Sorry. That's correct. Yes. Most important, yeah. of course. Yeah, like I wrote in that piece that RJ and, and Wiggins, well, uh, Wiggins ended that tournament as their best player. I think pretty clearly RJ a clear second. Those guys, like, I think we'll get into them. 
Um, they have a ton of talent and a ton of skills. But Powell, it, it was just the way that the roster ended up forming with, you know, Olinick dropping out last minute, Ken Birch dropping out last minute, Tristan Thompson dropping out. It was like they had, and then and then Edgem or Ejum dropping out last minute too. So it was like, okay, all the big depth is all of a sudden gone and, and you're left with one NBA big and that's Dwight Powell. And then there's others, Trey Lyles, Nicholson, but those guys are more like, they're small for the five. Um, and, and Powell ended up being the only traditional center on the roster. And so his importance just kind of like became clear as the tournament went along and, and given that the matchups in the other group were going to be either the Czech Republic or Turkey or both, um, those are big teams who play, you know, in the Czechs case, they started two seven-footers against Canada. And it was really important if Powell was going to be able to kind of provide that post presence, that rebounding, or as we saw in the Czech game, if he was going to get into a little foul trouble, um, I was concerned with how the Team Canada would kind of get around that. And at the end, they, they really couldn't. Were you surprised that Canada wasn't able to leverage, you know, their NBA talent more effectively against the Czech Republic? Yeah, kind of. Like, we talk about, um, with, the, with the Toronto Raptors, we talk about that team wanting to be, like, more than the sum of its parts because it doesn't have a superstar. Um, it's a lot of talented guys, especially, like, the 2019 team, right? We always talked about, like, wow, this team, like, is has really coalesced into more than the sum of its parts i think for team canada they were always just trying to be the sum of their parts and they could never be there and maybe it was just the fact that they didn't have any warm-up games and then they were thrown into this tournament these guys hadn't played together and that was really clear um i was surprised because i thought they were going to win that tournament like if you asked me before the tournament who I would pick. It, w- it was pretty clearly Team Canada, and I definitely thought that they were going to make the final based on the way the Czechs played in their first two games. Um, so I was surprised, and honestly, that game was such an eye-opening experience to me because once they brought it to overtime, I would have bet all the money that they were going to win, right? Um, all the momentum was going in their way. They had finally begun to hit some shots. Um, the Czechs looked shocked and, and they couldn't believe that comeback. And then like something weird just flipped and, and they could not get it done. And it is surprising on one hand that the NBA talent didn't carry them through. But at the same time, with a little bit of hindsight, it becomes more understandable, especially when you look at like this Team USA thing going 0-2 to Nigeria and Australia. Like, it's not easy to win these one-off tournaments where you have very little time to get together and, and the teams you're playing are much more experienced than you. Do you think the, the FIBA rules or FIBA play style has a big effect on that? Um, not necessarily. I think like maybe with the rules and, and the ball, maybe that affected you know Team Canada's three-point shooting because like while it's not an elite three-point shooting team, it's definitely better than they shot in the tournament. And maybe that just has to do with the different distance, the different ball, whatever. But um, I actually think the guys they brought match, like played the FIBA style well in terms of like physical, you know, like Lou Dort 
and and even RJ Barrett, who's built like a tank as well. Um, these guys like they can thrive in in those slower kind of physical circumstances. But I will say on the defensive end, I think the FIBA rules hurt that team a little bit on on the goaltending side of things. On you know maybe not having a a rim protector hurt them because especially in the check game, which we can talk about, they were just helping so much on, you know, in the post and in the paint. And then it was getting swung up to the three point line and and they were hitting shots. And the reason they were helping so much was because they didn't have a rim protector, especially when Powell was in foul trouble, they were playing really small. And in that sense, like usually in the FIBA game, you can station a guy under the basket, no three in the key rule, and just be like, here, you're you're our rim protector. And Canada couldn't do that, so it put them in a lot of rotations that they just were not comfortable. They hadn't played enough together for their defense in that tournament ever to kind of rotate the way it had to and cover for each other the way it had to. And that was really like ultimately their downfall. Did you think there was an antidote on the roster to fix their defensive woes against the Czechs? Like, as, as you just said, there, there was a lot of problems with how they could handle that, especially that they couldn't just, as you said, put somebody in the key. But was there an antidote on the roster, or do you think they just had to do more heavy lifting offensively? Because that kind of has been the calculus for smaller teams, is that the trade-off typically comes on the defensive end and you have to try and make up for that with more, let's say, talent or skill offensively. Yeah, I, I feel very strongly the latter. I think they just had to make up for it offensively. I don't think they had anyone coming off the bench who was going to save them in that regard. Like maybe if they chose to bring like a Zach Eady, like the seven-footer, 19-year-old uh, who who just had a great tournament with the U19s? Like he he was brought to Victoria, and then they ultimately decided to leave him off the 12 man roster, leaving just Powell in that spot. And that was like a questionable decision in a way. He is 19, but it was like okay, this team really does not have center depth. So once the roster was announced, there was no one that they could bring off the bench and be like, okay, here guard the seven footers in the post, and we're not going to send help because you can do that alone, right? Like. Nicholson and Lyles they did their best in that regard but just help was warranted so yeah like that's that's also why I kind of find it confusing that people are obviously people look for people to blame and Nick Nurse is one of them in some people's eyes but I don't feel that way I thought he coached a really good tournament and I think my only like quarrel with him um, in that game was that I think he should have gone more offense in terms of like play Nikhil like Corey Joseph shouldn't play 20 minutes the way he looked that entire tournament. Play Nikhil more, ride Nikhil more. And same with Lou Dort, even though he's a, he's a defensive guy, but like ride Lou more. He played, I think, 10 guys in that game against Czech. And like, this is like a, a do or die game, right? And you're playing 10 guys and you still haven't kind of figured out your rotations. I think that's a couple too many. So that would be my only real quarrel in the game in terms of personnel. But it was really just like unlucky shooting at, at the end of the day. Like I thought Canada in that game, I thought they were coached really well. I thought that they made some good, you know, adjustments at the half and, and they were getting the better shots. And I thought that they solved the checks defensively in the third quarter at one point. 
Um, but the Czechs just played a really grimy game where they kept getting to the free throw line. They kept hitting these really timely threes out of nothing where it looked like Canada for, you know, most of the the shot clock had stopped them. And then all of a sudden, okay, here's, here's a three to end the shot clock. Um, but yeah, like it's one of those things that if you played that, that game in a series of seven, Canada would probably win it. But a lot of just things went against them in that game, and and that was it. It's not like something I can blame one person on. So the idea is probably that with Nikhil Alexander-Walker, there's a little bit more advantage creation and more scoring opportunities. But I guess Nick Nurse thought that with Corey Joseph, you have like this steady hand at the, the top of the, the offense, I guess. Yeah, we were talking about this like with the media – right after the game, Corey Joseph played 20 minutes in a two point loss and was minus 21. Right. It's like, I don't want to bag on Corey Joseph right now, but he really wasn't providing much of anything that tournament defensively. He's good. Uh, He forces turnovers. He digs down in the post. He keeps guys in front of him. So defensively, no problems, but Nikhil's not like a liability defensively. And then, offensively like yes he can be a steadying hand but really I found more often than not he's just dribbling the ball touching the paint not seeing any cutters not seeing any shooters so he keeps his dribble alive and resets the offense and now 16 seconds is gone and he passes it to RJ or Wiggins and it's like okay go create you know like I actually felt like he was slowing down the offense more than he was getting guys involved he had one assist in this game in 20 minutes it's like he just wasn't doing enough for me to warrant like even Michael Mulder. I would have preferred over Corey Joseph. I like Mulder a lot. He's a good shooter. And he had a, like a really nice year plugging in at different times for the Warriors, but okay, let's do RJ and Wiggins. Then Wiggins maybe unfairly had like a Canadian heritage moment taken away from him. I think, which fits so well with like his career arc that he had that, and now that it's just kind of a footnote in a Czech Republic victory, but, and the, yeah, it's just, it's tough to see, but Wiggins, RJ, what did you think of them overall? Yeah. So like, let's start with Wiggins. Um, I just think like, first of all, you asked me how the tournament was and like this game, that comeback in the last minute was honestly the best thing I've seen in person and in a sporting event in my life. Like it was I was writing, I was like canceling my hotel. I was, I was out, you know, like nine minutes left in the game, four minutes left in the game. It was just like, okay, Canada's not coming back. And then Andrew Wiggins just like does something incredible. Um, Like it's hard to overstate just, just how unlikely that comeback was because it really all happened with less than a minute remaining. I think it was a nine point lead erased in a minute. Um, So I will say that, like, that was an incredible game. So, like, obviously a lot of people are disappointed by this tournament. um, But a lot of people paid attention and, like, got to watch an incredible comeback. So at least, like, that is one silver lining of this tournament, I think. That was – he made that game better than it it was supposed to be. And the other silver lining of this tournament, I think, is just Wiggins and Barrett together – as a wing duo, um, they're really good. Their skill sets feed off each other really well. You know, Nick played one of them at all times in this tournament on the floor, pretty much. And if you're a Team Canada fan, your hope has to be 
these guys are committed to the program. You know, RJ seems very committed. His dad is the GM. He called the gold medal in the U19s a couple of years ago, the greatest moment of his basketball career. Wiggins, you know, it's hard to tell with Wiggins because this was his first time in a few years. But if the two of them are committed long-term, I think Canada's in really strong hands. I think they have a, a core wing tandem to kind of rely on and build chemistry off of and everything can kind of flow from there um, because they were both really impressive to me in this tournament. Like both as NBA guys and as FIBA guys, I think both of their skill sets translate well. Wiggins in the mid range, like he was getting it every time he wanted. He was so comfortable in that area. And obviously his three point shot because of the NBA range he he can step out two, three feet past the FIBA three-point line and and hit shots where guys just aren't guarding him. And then RJ is just a physical guy. Like he got to the he got to line seven times. You know, in that check game, the main adjustment that I thought Canada made was like, screw it. We're not hitting shots. We're getting to the we're getting to the rim every single time. And like the level of aggression was not nick nursey in terms of like what you see from nick nurse teams in terms of just like drive after drive after drive and like let's get free throws but i give credit to the players there because they noticed like something that was they weren't comfortable shooting the three of that game most of them and then they just said you know what we're getting to the line and so rj and wiggins led that charge if you had to predict into the future and let's say you get to in this prediction you get to pretend that the guys you want are coming along to join the program. How optimistic are you? Very optimistic if we can get everyone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because like Canada was so close in that tournament. And yes, they did have eight NBA guys, but they also just didn't have much time to, to practice together. Didn't have many reps playing together. Um, and, and you... In a game like that, if if there was like a Jamal Murray or a Shea there to to break it down when they needed it, to, to kind of take over when I thought they really needed it, um, I think they would have won that game, right? It, it was like such a game that was won on the margins that having a superstar there to take over would have would have done it. And yeah, like when you look at the Olympics, there's obviously stronger competition, but Canada has like a lot of crazy talent like this is still the golden age of Canada basketball as far as we're concerned and like going forward we should be pretty optimistic because even if like not all of the big the biggest names commit you know say even one of SGA or or Jamal Murray commits like that's enough in my opinion you get some some bigs in there and and run it back with a similar team like that's enough to be a metal team to me for sure I'll I'll also say like in that regard on Wiggins is that like, I don't know who to blame this on or if there's anyone to blame this on, but like nurse runs a very like egalitarian offense. It was never like put the ball in RJ or, or Andrew's hands and like take over, like take us home. Right. Even you saw with the last shot with going to Trey Lyles, nobody expected that. And it's really hard to poke holes in it because it was such an open shot that I'm not even going to, but you know, last five minutes of the fourth quarter against the checks, I really thought that like, and I wrote it in my notes, maybe four or five times, like give the ball to Wiggins. He had it going in the second half. 
his mid-range shot that entire tournament was pretty much unguardable the way that defenses have been playing them. And I just thought that he should have taken the game over a little bit more. And I don't know if that's on him, right, as, as a player to demand it, or if it's on Nurse, or probably a combination of the two to kind of like give it to him and, and be like, take us home. But I really do feel like that was one of the issues in in this whole tournament was that they didn't have a player who could just like kind of take a weight off of everybody else's shoulders and just say like, look, I'm, I'm going to hold the ball right now and, and I'm going to make things happen. That is one of the hardest things to kind of suss out is whether, you know, when teams win, typically they'll give you the full rundown. Like this guy said this, this guy said this, then we came together and decided this. Or if a guy audible on a play, he's like, yeah, our first option, like let's say it's a pin down on the right side. Or like if it's the Raptors, maybe a hammer screen. And yeah, we audible to this. I took a baseline jump or something like that. But when teams lose and miss a shot, usually they're not going to delve into the details of like, oh yeah, this guy decided not to do this. This guy decided not to do this. So it's tough to decide and kind of figure out, is Wiggins adhering to the game plan? Is he being a little bit more passive? Was Nurse maybe trying to coax more out of him that he said no? Was he willing to get more, but Nurse was trying to service, you know, the egalitarian offense and that kind of stuff? It's incredibly difficult because we don't really know anything and people aren't usually forthcoming with that. But RJ Barrett's playmaking, what did you think of that? It was good. I think um, I was listening to our friends with The Athletic on the Raptors Reasonableness podcast and then they were kind of commenting on how Team Canada doesn't have a whole lot of point guard depth in in the kind of upcoming years, looking forward to upcoming tournaments. And I'm not too worried about that. You know, part of it is based on the FIBA game. It's just different. The level of ball movement, the level of spacing is just diminished compared to the NBA. So I don't think you need guys who can kind of see over the defense and, and make these like elite, you know, reads in the same or maybe as often uh, in the same way. Maybe that's because Nurse ran a very egalitarian offense. But yeah, like you said, RJ was one of the, you know, premier playmakers on that team. And it's nothing, you know, fancy with RJ, at least from mm-hmm. from what I'm seeing. Like, he's not, like, making these incredible passes to the weak side corner over, like, a couple defenders, you know, hedging him. It's not stuff like that, but he reads the floor like incredibly well for a 21 year old with what, like now two years of NBA experience. Right. And, and that's like the biggest thing that sticks out about him. People, his coaches and teammates talked about like how quickly he picks up sets and, and stuff they're running. But yeah, like RJ, that game against the checks was such an incredible performance for a 21-year-old in his, like, first stage with the FIBA men's team, like, first meaningful competition. Six assists, zero turnovers, 24 points, 9 of 17 shooting, right? Like, in a do-or-die game for him to step up in that way. And like you said, with, you know, Corey Joseph not doing a whole lot, like, Barrett was the main guy getting his teammates involved. Um it's it's very impressive, and, and that's the other thing I wrote about in that kind of wrapping it up piece is that Barrett is, in a lot of ways, he felt like the leader of this team. Like, obviously, I'm not in the locker room, and I don't really know what 
the conversations are like behind closed doors. But from what I see on the court and from the way he talks about his experiences with Team Canada, I think Barrett is the guy to watch for in terms of who's taking this seriously, who's recruiting talent, who's maybe a future captain of this team. Um, and in terms of like an NBA guy, I am very high on him as a, a prospect, mm-hmm. if we can still call him that. Like, I think obviously like Tibbs is, you know, putting him in a very defined role and asking him to, to do that just as like any NBA team would, but he's going to slowly grow out of that role every year. And, and like we just talked about, get more playmaking reps, get more on ball, pick and roll reps. Um, and especially if the three point shot kind of comes along, like it did this season, I think he's going to be great. Yeah. That's the biggest thing for me is that uh, with Tibbs, typically every once in a while, he'll let him operate as a primary. Here's a pick and roll. See how you can read the different levels of the defense and broken plays. You can kind of, if you want to shake and shimmy on guys, do your best see what happens. But typically the way that, Norman Powell was protected by the sets that the flares, the pin downs, the zippers, all that kind of stuff that was run for him to give him advantages to use his first step to get him going downhill or a jumper. That's something that RJ Barrett was, he operated in the same types of confines, but with team Canada, there's a bit more of an onus for him to create advantages for the team. And that was something I was extremely pleased with was not only for himself, and because, as you mentioned, like scoring was at a premium in the game against the Czechs and, you know, overall in the tournament, in a different setting, different spacing, finding guys who are willing to take it to the cup and to score and put pressure on the defense, super big. And as you mentioned, he's not making these incredible reads against the weak side zone, winning that game of cat and mouse. But when he gets downhill and it's just the backline defense versus him, He's got a great eye for dump-offs and really attracting that help side defense and getting guys the ball in the lane. Easy baskets. So he's not prolific, but he's creating good shots when he can. And so that's what I've been happiest with. And I do, I, I'm sure we're in the same, the same boat as being extremely high on RJ Barrett. I would not be surprised if he ends up a, a multi-time all-star. And that's like two or three. I don't know about five or six, but it's, uh, he'll be good. Yeah, I'm with you there. I think the one area where I'm still looking for him or where I see a lot of potential is like finding ways to leverage his strength because he's already, he's 21 and he already has like one of, you know, he's, he's one of the stronger players at his position, especially if he's a two, which I mean, it'll change, but you know what I mean? Like he can find ways to leverage his strength, getting downhill, bumping big men off him. Um, defensively like there's there's a whole lot of ways that I think he can figure out that game as he as he grows into this body and and I think that's that's just another way where he can kind of create space yeah like the it's something he was developing this year but the left-handed drive collect the ball bump and then step through because as you said depending on if he's playing the two or the three really depends on who's guarding him if it's a skinny three, if it's a, you know, a staunch or stocky two, it doesn't really matter. If it's a smaller guy, that hop step, bump and step through, depending on where the help side defense is, is very much in his bag. And that's just strength creation. It's literally nothing else. It's just being able to bump your defender off the spot you want to get to. 
And if you go back to when he was a younger guy, when he was a, a kid and playing against the United States when Canada won it all, it was just this bruising. He was a bruiser for his age. And mm-hmm. he would just leave, like, it'd be purple and blue on the left side of the backboard because he'd just bruise the backboard with how often he was getting to that side and laying it up and just being able to kind of muscle his way through the lane. It doesn't always translate for guys to be able to dominate physically at every level you go to. Typically, you hit a, a point of diminishing return. But Barrett yeah. might be able to be a bruiser and a very athletic one at that. Yeah, and the good thing, the a good sign is that the book is out on him in terms of like he likes to go left and drive that way, and it, did, it didn't matter. You know what I mean? Like teams are game planning for him. Coaches at the end of the games are talking like, yeah, we tried to take away Barrett's left hand. And like he's still getting into the line seven times, right? He, in terms of like his NBA future, I think that's pretty promising. Mm-hmm. Is there anybody else you want to touch on as far as the uh, the team? Um, I'll go through a couple guys. Dort was incredibly fun to watch in person because someone that big just should not move that quickly. Like mm-hmm. he's he's an he's an anomaly. Um, obviously, the three point shot didn't come along, and and that hurt them. But defensively, he's just you know, all NBA teams for years to come. He's he's really fun to watch. Um, Nikhil was great. Like, he's he's not getting much talk because, I don't know, he probably had his least effective game in the, in the final game. Um, but he had a really good tournament doing exactly what they needed, which was coming off the bench and providing a spark, which, like, like you just talked about, scoring was really hard to come by in this tournament and Nikhil was like one of the most you know their third easily their third best and scorer and he did it efficiently and he did it from all three levels and um he's he's an incredibly good prospect and I think like he just needs some actual playing time in New Orleans and he'll be really good um we yeah we talked about Corey Joseph who I just don't know how many more team Canada appearances he has in him but not really like Andrew Nicholson kind of surprised me how how good he was and how effective he was at the five because he is pretty small for a five especially in the FIBA game and like going back to like that game just being about a, 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 a about bad luck nicholson had two wide open three pointers i think in the third or fourth quarter just at the top of the arc they were giving it to him and like those are shots that he was knocking all tournament and he just couldn't get any to go uh in this in this game so yeah i think i think that pretty much covers it i i like that you bring up alexander walker because Maybe I took it for granted because I've liked Walker for a very long time. And ever since Adam McQueen came on here when Walker was in his first summer league and was like, this is the guy and was actually, and Shea wasn't that, that big a deal at this point was like, maybe he'll be better than Shea. And I think that's, that's less, you know, of a dig at Shea at that point and more optimism for Nikhil, but he was fifth in points per game in this tournament. And he shot it well, as you said, from every level. Mm. And that advantage creation in games where it can get really, really tight, where guys like Dort, as you said, Nicholson, like if the shots aren't going down, you need a guy like Nikhil to keep creating advantages. Otherwise, maybe you are getting stuck with 14 seconds of dribbling above the break. That's a really bad problem because not only 
gives the other team, they, they get to come down the other way, maybe with an advantage off of a long rebound or something like that. And they get to take a rest on defense too. So, and all these things piled up during the game. And in transition, you get to put pressure on the defense in ways where sometimes you're not comfortable. It can lead to foul trouble for guys like Wiggins or Pal, as it did in that game. So, you ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the Fall Guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, uh, man. I yeah, he was great. The thing that sticks out about him is like he's so quick, um, but I mean he's also incredibly like long, which usually isn't the case. But he's so quick, and yet he like can finish at like all speeds and from all these crazy angles. Like that's what really surprised me about him. I guess I didn't realize how good of a finisher he was around traffic, around the rim, through contact, like he he'll get to the rim just using that like first step and 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 like that really good speed or or some screen help and then it's just like okay he's here but he's like running so quickly and like he's been in the air so long that it's like there's no way he's gonna make this like reverse layup you know with his right hand and like somehow he'll he'll just spin it in so that that was what impressed me like we know he could shoot the ball we know he can handle a ball but that finishing uh, that was good. It's a, it's a really interesting thing because Russell Westbrook and John Wall are two guys who just, man, in their primes, the rapid athleticism they had. But both had trouble finishing at the rim when it wasn't a dunk. Their layups were not as sure a bet as they should have been. And even when the Raptors beat the Wizards in the playoffs, that was something that like the chickens came home to roost on John Wall was he'd create this rim pressure and they'd get nothing out of it, and he'd get super disappointed in that series against the Raptors. But as you say, Nikhil, a guy who's very comfortable within himself, contorting, controlling, decelerating the arm and the shoulder relative to the body so you can lay it up soft, the core strength to maintain like the flexibility through a move under the opposite side of the rim. All that stuff, these micro skills, so, so impressive. And something I think will be very beneficial for him in the NBA as a controlled finisher. And I hopefully fingers crossed for team Canada for a long time. Yeah. And, and like, this is kind of off the rails, but this is a Raptors podcast. So like Siakam is also like, everyone talks about Siakam needing to um, improve his ball handling. But I wrote at the end of the season that, for me, and you can disagree, like the biggest thing is actually his finishing, which could seem like a cop-out answer, but like Siaka mostly gets to his spots, but just like we talked about with Nikhil, he doesn't have that. Like sometimes if he's going too fast to the rim, and this is something Giannis is really good at, um, 
Siakam just blows a layup. And it's like, he should be a better finisher than he is based on the spots he's getting to and kind of the balance he has getting to those spots. But he blows a lot of layups. He blows a lot of like good looking, you know, floaters and hook shots. And I think it's like you said, those micro skills that you just have to kind of work on um, if you if you ever want to have like a high usage while still maintaining this like high efficiency finishing. That's a really, really interesting one because on the one hand, I agree with you because Siakam's finishing was way worse than it should have been this past year. And maybe even a little bit in his all NBA season, it kind of, it started to escape him a little bit, but the year they won the championship. And I know, you know, this, it was like, there was a magnet in the rim. He would throw in shots from anywhere, hook shots, push shots, bank shots. Like they could be going at 30 miles an hour and it would just ping in. He could lob it. It would go in. His finishing was at such an unbelievable level that everybody was like, who the hell? This guy's touch is unreal. And then he gets injured. He has weight fluctuations. Like the explosion off of his finishing leg is a little bit different than it usually is. And not to mention like when you change your body and different guys are starting to defend you now and teams are gearing up on you, that last collection, whether it be on one foot or two feet before you go to finish at the rim, it's either sped up or it's slowed down. And the wonderful pacing he had as like a third option or pseudo second option on that Kawhi Leonard Kyle Lowry team is he had his space because everybody else had their attention elsewhere and he wasn't hurried up. So he had all these gathers and he was very within his body before he finished. And that kind of was robbed. And as you said, everything sped up and it's tough to, to stay in control when you're sped up. So even a guy who we've seen had an unbelievable amount of touch had that kind of escape him over the past, like maybe 14 months of basketball because the speed of it all changed. And so it's, it's about adjusting for sure. And I'm, you brought up Siakam. I'm really excited to see if that does come around for him because it's something we've seen he's equipped to do when there's less attention on him. And, you know, doing things with a lot of attention on you is kind of what makes becoming a star very difficult in the NBA. So that's a huge thing he could answer. But he tore his labrum in. So it's, yeah, man, it's tough. Yeah. It's tough. We'll always find a way when we pod together to, to get Siakam involved, though. We're, we're Siakam optimists, like uh, heavy, heavy into it, I think. Yeah, it is interesting, though. You just really don't think about these things like finishing when it comes to um, increasing your scoring load. You know, you think about can you create the space and whatever, all these other things. But you, you figure you're going to finish at, at a similar rate than you did as, say, the third option just because you're you're still the same player and you you still have the capabilities of of making similar shots so it is a really interesting thing that we don't like think about all that often but then you look at the shot chart uh like year to year and it's just like oh yeah like Siakam's actually not as bad as these people are making out to be he's just like not finishing from really any area of the floor as well as he has in the past which is maybe why we're optimistic in that regard because he's done it before. Yeah, and it's as simple as when you're the first option, the defense is keyed into you. That help side will step over one step earlier. You have to pick the ball up one step earlier. 
you're stretching out just a little bit more. Like mm. when you're when you're picking the ball up and you're using your gather step, maybe that's not just a simple gather step. Maybe that's a gather step wherein you actually have to evade a dig down, stuff like that. It's just there's so many things that are incorporated in being a first option that you don't feel when you're the third option. The defense isn't going to step over as quick. You're not going to get the dig down when you're going to the rim because guys are going to be tending to shooters or guys who are dangerous against the closeout. And so the assist numbers went up for Siakam, and he is a really great passer for his position, but the, the finishing has gotten complicated, which is also why, to bring it back to Team Canada and a player I know we both love, Shea, his ability to take on the, the load of a number one option and just ratchet everything up to 100, finishing, shooting, playmaking, all of it, that makes it seem like if you plugged him into Team Canada in a FIBA environment, teams can do whatever, but he's going to get to his spots, and he's just such an overwhelming shot creator and shot maker that I'm – dude, I'm so excited to see Shea in a Team Canada jersey, and I just – yeah, this is maybe not professional of me, but oh my God, dude, that's all I want. No, that's all I want too. That was originally also really exciting about this tournament before – he or the thunder you know everyone i talked to there was just like do you think it's shay or do you think it's the thunder and it's like yeah i think it's the thunder and his agents like it sucks the way the nba works and all these complicated factors but uh yeah he would combine like what Nikhil does on steroids scoring wise plus be like the facilitator that they didn't have in this tournament um so it would be nice but uh we'll have to wait and see with this stuff Mm-hmm. Do you believe, like, is this, like, is Oklahoma, are these rumors real that OKC is actually willing to considering getting rid of him or trading him? I think, wait in these? Like, I would love for it to be real because I, I, you know, I, I was saying this in the middle of the season. I've been saying this for a while relative to other people, I think, is that Shea will be an MVP candidate in short yeah. order. Like, it, it's coming. And yeah. I... It's that that should be there. Why they would trade a guy who seems like the ticket is punched already that he's going to be that type of guy. I have no idea because MVP candidates, I don't care about a timeline. Why would anybody care about a timeline? If you have an MVP candidate, you don't prioritize a timeline. You try and prioritize that talent. And so trading Shea, I think, I, I can't remember who said it. There's been like four people who said it initially that started the kind of slow burn of that rumor. And then everybody else kind of just started mentioning it off the cuff. But I can't see why they would do something like that. He's 22, right? Maybe he just turned 23. Yeah, he just said his birthday. He just turned 23. And he'll probably be an MVP candidate. Why you would trade anybody like that? It makes no sense to me. So I have to assume it's not real because if it is real... Sam Presti needs to be fired like yesterday. Like that's, that is, yeah. that is complete dereliction of duty. That is just, you need to be fired if that's the way you run a basketball team. The fetishization of draft picks <laughs> has gone too far. Well, what about the point. draft picks, man? Yeah. He, he sees yeah. Victor Wembenyama and he's like, Victor could be like seven foot two Shea. Yeah. And maybe he'll even be seven foot four. And Wemby is worth getting very excited over, to be fair. But you would fit on a team with Shea. And, mm-hmm. like, yeah, I just, dude, I don't know. I hope it's real, and I hope the Raptors trade the fourth pick for him, plus whatever else, because yeah. Shea is a world-ending presence on the court. 
but I don't think it's real because I can't imagine a GM that bad at his job that isn't in like New York seven years ago or something. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Okay. So you and I are both obviously extremely excited about Shea. If we're excited about Shea, I can't imagine, you know, if it's four years from now, whatever, kids who get to watch him, hopefully for Team Canada, when they're like seven, like seven to 14, that they start to really love basketball because they saw Shea. The same way that this era of the championship Raptors, very clearly, like there's no way to deny it, more kids enroll in basketball when it becomes a more popular sport. The more kids who enroll, the better the competition, the more people are doing it, the greater the chance that you get these incredible quick twitch athletes to involve themselves in your sport for your country. Shea and Team Canada, if they start having success at the international level, that could be a really big thing. And the golden era of today could be dwarfed by the golden era of tomorrow, if you know what I mean. And so what, what all of this lead in is to ask is, what was the, the vibe around being there, watching Team Canada, seeing people who got to cheer for NBA players representing you know, the red and white? Yeah, it was... It was positive. Like, it was with the media, it was um, pretty like pessimistic, I would say, because like those guys, like Michael Grange and Doug Smith, they've been to these tournaments, right? They've seen like all these heartbreaking ways that Team Canada has lost to worst opponents. So for them, it was like, here we go again, kind of thing. But for the fans, it was very much not that. It was very much like, first of all, the vibes were just good because COVID ended there. Like while I was there, like BC was basically like, all right, you don't have to wear masks anymore anywhere. So have fun. So that that was just like, you know, people are going to be in a good mood, I think. But um, no, in terms of like being at the game, I spoke to a lot of kids and their parents about, yeah, they a lot of them brought up the Raptors and how meaningful that championship was to their basketball playing careers. And and a lot of them talked about what having this high-level basketball in Victoria will mean just in terms of like it being really inspirational. And you could see that on a lot of kids' faces where they were just so happy to be there and like so exhilarated even after Canada lost to kind of like be in this position to be one of the first people to be in a live sporting event for, for almost two years and, and to be watching this like incredible almost comeback. And I think a lot of those kids will follow this team forward to, to the next qualifying tournament or the, the FIBA America Cup. And, and yeah, like even aside from people who are in Victoria, I, I saw a ton of interest just like in the Raptors community on Twitter and, and on my, with my friends on social media, like this was the first time a team Canada team, I think like really got the national recognition that this program has probably been striving for, for a very long time. And so that's a good sign considering some of the best players didn't even go right. Like considering that this was, not necessarily the cream of the crop, but it, it was still very good. But considering there's even more excitement to be had on the court, um, it's a good sign. I think so too. And that's, 
I can't remember if it's 2016 or 2017 where Canada, besides the United States, they had the highest representation in NCAA basketball players. But it's it's always near the top now. It's rare to find an NBA draft where a Canadian isn't being drafted, if not in you know the first round, the second round. So it's cool to see because it wasn't that long ago that basketball was not considered legitimized in Canada. Sure, the Raptors were there, but they were a side story to everything else. And success at the NBA level and hopefully the international level within the coming years is something we can look forward to as the game grows because the game is, you know, maybe reaching a fever pitch in America. Maybe it's close to as big as it'll ever be in the United States, but it can do so much growing the world over. And Canada is a part of that, that burgeoning growth. Is there, uh, is there anything else you want to address before we, we get out of here? No, I just think like with, with that too, it, it can come down to like, do they have, you know, one, one run in them in these coming years where the, you know, just like we saw with the Raptors where the country kind of like hops on this bandwagon and, you know, bandwagons can be a good thing too. So it's about having like a run in them where maybe they make an Olympic games and maybe they, they beat a couple teams that they're not expected to beat. And that can be really hard as we're seeing with team USA right now, like the basketball talent in Canada is at a golden age for now, but it's also at a golden age in several other countries in the world. Right. Um, so it's going to be hard to medal at any of these international tournaments um, with the way that these one and done tournaments go, especially where you lose a game and you're out. Um, but if they have a special run in them at any point in the next few years, then I think we're going to see like mainstream, you know, fandom and, and attractiveness on that scale. I, I do think there's a future where, you know, in, in America, you can see it's kind of in vogue to wear dream team apparel. Like if mm-hmm. somebody saw you wearing dream team apparel, they'd be like, hell yeah, dude, that's super cool. There, there's a future that encapsulates and includes a Raptors team that, you know, captures the attention of the, the national audience in that way and probably would capture the attention and the fandom of the world if it was Team Canada versus, I don't know if it's going to end up being Shea versus Luca or Shea versus Tatum, but I want to live in that world where that happens. I think that'd be cool as hell. Yeah, that would be great. And even like this Wiggins, you know, game, it was almost one of those moments, right? Like you this, deserved it, that man. comeback was almost one of those moments. And I'm like a nerd, but I, I would have got like, I'm, I'm not that many years away from getting like an RJ Barrett team Canada jersey. I think that stuff's really cool. Like anyone who shows like a, a commitment to a program when they really don't need to. And when it hasn't been cool to for many years, like, I respect that. Um, but yeah, like, of course, if we can get the the real NBA superstars to come, then it would be a whole nother level. Yeah. Okay. Before we get out of here, uh, plug, plug, plug away, sir. It's uh, your time to shine. All right. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the pod. I've been wanting to to talk about this for a little while. And and your, your podcast on the, the Raptors top four, kind of big or, or top three potential draft prospects have been good. I'd encourage any Raptors fan to check those out because those are really great insights into those three players. And 
And I came out of the podcast just being like, yeah, give me any of them because I'll be extremely excited for next year if we have any of those players. Um, but yeah, in terms of my work, you could follow me for everything on Twitter at O-R-E-N-W-E-I-S-F-E-L-D, Oren Weisfeld. And I guess the main thing, I'm, I'm working on some Olympic stuff uh, with the games coming in August. So that's what I'm going to be spending my time doing before the next Raptors season. Just like some profiles on some pretty cool Canadian athletes for some pretty cool Canadian publications. So follow me on Twitter if you're into that that kind of stuff because Canadian athletes going to the Olympics is is pretty cool. It's yeah, kicks ass. Quite frankly, yeah. thank you for the thank you for the compliment on the uh, the definitive draft podcasts. I had a lot of fun putting those together, and I do think they're good. So yeah, thank you for saying so. But. Myself and the audience are all hopefully looking forward to taking up and reading your profiles on these Canadian athletes going forward for those cool Canadian publications. Oren, thank you so much for coming on, man. All right. Thanks for having me. And listener, whether you got into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye. <laughs>